Now, I want you to remember what's happening here. I've already alluded to it. This is what the literary genre of this passage is a farewell discourse. Discourse, fancy word for a speech. This is a farewell speech, and it lasts through chapter 14, through the end of 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and ends in chapter 17. So this is a long deathbed farewell. The literary genre, again, is a farewell discourse. And Jesus' farewell speech follows the, the outline of that genre of farewell discourse. A farewell discourse includes a number of things, which we see included right here. It's, it's when a dying leader summons his followers together. He wants to, he wants to uh, remind them of all their experiences together and, and what he has taught them. He wants to prepare them for the, the trouble that they're going to face in his absence. He wants to warn them of the challenges that are coming before them and the temptations they'll face to, to uh, go astray. He wants to encourage their hearts with his promises. There's that, yes, I am going away, and yes, that is troubling, but your hearts don't need to be troubled, and here's why, and he explains those things. It also is often accompanied or ends with a prayer of blessing on the followers, which is John 17. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's his prayer for the disciples. It's his prayer for us. And then the final thing that it ends with is the leader often appoints a successor which Jesus is going to do as well. You maybe don't know who Jesus' successor is. Come next week and you'll hear all about it. This is a farewell discourse. Jesus is telling them something quite surprising because as he tells them that he is leaving, he tells them that it's going to be to great advantage for them that he leaves. Their hearts are torn up. Jesus' announcement and what's taking place right now, you got to drop into the drama and the tension of, the, of this situation, but they are anxious. They have troubled hearts. And Jesus then proceeds to tell them that it's actually better for them if he leaves them. If Jesus leaves, it's to their advantage. Because Jesus' departure will have three major benefits to them. And Dave hit one last week. His going away will secure their future destiny. So Jesus has to leave in order to prepare a place for them. So that's one of the major benefits of his leaving. He's going to hit another one today. But what he's saying to the disciples with troubled hearts is everything is going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. What Jesus wants you to know right now 
in whatever it is that creates anxiety for you, that it's going to ultimately be all right. Now these guys, and you talked about this last week, they have troubled hearts. The disciples have troubled hearts. Jesus addresses that. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because their hearts are troubled. Now they have good reason for troubled hearts. You don't need to have a, a deep understanding of psychology to, 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 to see that these guys are experiencing perceptible anxiety. The reasons are clear. The first one is this. He said in verse 13, right after Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now I'm glorified. And then he said, little children, little orphans, yet a little while, and I'll be with you no longer. That is troubling to the disciples. Where I'm going, you can't come. Their whole world has been wrapped up in following Jesus for the last three years. There's, there's been this, it, it's, it's totally consumed their lives, and now Jesus is leaving in a way that comes unexpectedly. These guys left everything behind to follow him. And the thought of him leaving them is devastating. He calls them orphans, little children. Perhaps you know what it feels like to have your parent, one of your parents die when you're young. Some of you know what that feels like. If you know what that feels like, or if you can imagine what that feels like, then you know something of what these disciples are feeling right now. This is their emotional state. Jesus has required everything of them. He's asked them to invest their whole future in following him, which is what Jesus asks of every would-be disciple. All in. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is what he requires. They've invested that. They've made that investment. And they thought the future was going to look differently. And a future without him comes as a shattering prospect. A further cause of anxiety. One of them, 12, these are close friends. They've spent years together, eating meals together, spending time together. And one of them has turned out to be a betrayer. He betrayed Jesus. for He left for 30 pieces of silver. He has betrayed Jesus. One of them was a betrayer. And it's even worse. They're the team captain, Peter, is going to betray Jesus as well. He's going to deny him, Jesus said. He makes this proclamation that I'll die for you. And Jesus said, will you die for me? I'm actually on my way to die for you. But just so you know, within 24 hours, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. If Peter, the boldest of all of us, 
isn't going to stand the coming test, what hope do I have? And if all that wasn't enough, Jesus has left them with the Great Commission. And he's leaving them to accomplish it without him. You get the sense? All of it is deeply troubling. There is an anxious, there's a palpable anxiety that's in the room. Now, you haven't experienced this exactly, but you do know what it's like to have a troubled heart. You do know what it's like to wake up feeling anxious. You do know what it's like to bring an anxious presence into your day. Troubled hearts express the mindset not only of these disciples. Troubled hearts express the mindset of many people in this room of many people in the modern world, of many people in Chester County, Pennsylvania, which paradoxically, one of the wealthiest counties in the world, where most of us have been sheltered from the kinds of stark deprivations of most people in the world, Lack of food, lack of shelter, lack of health care plagues millions and millions of people in the world. But plenty doesn't always equal peace of mind. Plenty doesn't always equal peace of mind. Notorious Big said it this way, more money, more problems. My point is this, even followers of Jesus are frequently plagued by anxiety. So many things trouble our hearts. You want to walk through a few? Hmm. Not really, someone said. <laughs> I get it. The state of our nation the anger and division among political parties, among people in general. How about the evil that's all around us? Especially evil that has come to those who are innocent. Child abuse. Abortion. Racism. Pain and loss and death have come to many of us. We got friends who are suffering. A sickness that just lingers on and on and on. And the doctors don't seem to know what to do about it. You watch your child suffer and you wrestle with God wondering if he's forgotten you. A debilitating depression perhaps hangs over you. 
paralyzing you or someone that you love? People asking questions, why? Why does it have to be this way? God, if you love me, why would you leave me here? Why have you allowed this, Lord? Is this going to get any better? Loneliness. Some of you are experiencing that. Creates anxiety. And all of these things among just the regular garden variety troubles of life, right? Not enough money. Car breakdown. Appliances break. Kids need help with their homework. Marriage arguments. You're getting older and you feel it in your body. Friendships change. Your boss is so demanding. You got a difficult relationship with your neighbor and you signed a 30-year mortgage. (laughs) And if that's not enough, if that's not enough, we all have this tendency to actually imagine the problems that we're facing to be worse than they are. We borrow trouble. John Keats, a poet, said this, Imaginary grievances have always been my torment, more than real ones. Imaginary grievances have always been my torment more than real ones. Which which was worse in the life of this eight-year-old boy? The actual Novocaine needle or the dread of it that hung over him, me, for for the year when the appointment or the six months when the appointment was set? I can remember like them saying, okay, you got to come back to get that cavity filled in four months or six months. I'm telling you, I didn't need to carry a day planner. I didn't need to carry a calendar. That day hung over my head. I was haunted by it. I was so thankful. Six months seemed like such a long time when you're eight years old. I got, I got almost an eternity before I have to go. But sooner or later, I would get closer and closer to the vision of Dr. Felix coming towards me with that kind of like fake smile on his face and a long hypodermic needle that were worse back when I was a kid sitting in that chair and the tray of instruments that he was going to prod me with. Imagined fears can be worse than the actual reality. Friends, my point is this. We know what it feels like to be right where the disciples are. We know what it feels like to be anxious. We know what it feels like to be troubled. We're not immune from troubled hearts. And when Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled, he used a vivid word. He basically was saying, don't let your heart shudder. He used the same word to describe himself. He's described himself with a troubled heart three times in the book of John. His heart shuddered as Judas prepared to betray him. What Jesus is saying is this. 
It may look like your world is falling in on you. It may look like all is lost. It may look like the darkness is going to drown you, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Does anybody feel that? You feel like your world's falling in on you? Some of you do. You feel like you're going to drown in the darkness that surrounds you? Jesus says to you, he says to you, he says to you, he says to you, don't let your hearts be troubled. How? How? I hear you, Jesus, but how do you do that? can I do that? He told you. He starts out, 14, believe in God. Believe also in me. Some translations actually say, trust in God. Trust also in me. Then look at how he ends this section that we read. After he answers some questions of the disciples, he ends by saying, believe. He says it again. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of all the things I've done that you've seen. Here's my main point. Here's the main point from this passage. The answer for an anxious and troubled heart is confident trust in Jesus. The answer, you need an answer. You're anxious, you need an answer. The answer, the best answer, that you could ever receive, the best answer that I could provide you is that, that there is an answer for an anxious and troubled heart. The answer is confident trust in Jesus. The answer for an anxious and troubled heart is confident trust in Jesus. The answer, the solution for an anxious and troubled heart is confident trust in Jesus. The answer for an anxious and troubled heart is confident trust in Jesus. You get it? It's that simple. We just got to keep on trusting Jesus. If we would keep in mind the wonderful qualities of Christ, the wonderful attributes of Christ, it is true that our hearts would not be as troubled as they are, but it's easier said than done. Who's with me? You were singing loud when we were worshiping. We're still worshiping. We're worshiping Jesus. Somebody talk back at me. Do you hear the, the comforting words of the Savior, but can you acknowledge that it's easier said than done? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We skip to what comes after the but. Oh, he's overcome the world, great. But we forget that he said, you will have trouble. You're going through trouble right now. You're passing through trouble. Jesus didn't say, what I wanted him to say was, take heart, I have overcome the world, therefore all in Christ, trouble free. That's what I wanted him to say. But he didn't say that. 
What he said is he's going to be good enough. He, that who he is allows me to put my confident trust in him that when I feel anxious and when I feel troubled, he's going to ultimately see me through that. Amen? The Lord knew that we would have questions. The Lord knew that you would need a further explanation of what is involved in trusting him. So he went on to specifically instruct us on the nature of belief that would deliver our troubled hearts. And he explains it to the disciples right here. The answer for an anxious and troubled heart is confident trust in Jesus. And I can say with confidence that trust is the imperative. That means trust is the command. That means that what the Bible is asking, what Jesus is asking of you, is that you trust him. But then he goes on to explain why that is a reasonable expectation. Because it's a trust that's rooted in who he is. We should always read our Bibles looking for what is expected of us. We should read our Bibles looking for the application. The application is real clear. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in me. Trust in me. Because the answer for your anxiety and the answer for your troubled heart is trust in me. Jesus says to anxious disciples that his leaving, the worst thing that could happen to them, is not the unmitigated disaster that they think it is. Whatever you're passing through right now is not the unmitigated disaster that you imagine it to be. And I'm talking about real trouble. I'm not talking about maybe trouble. I'm talking about real trouble that you are enduring right now. On the contrary, Jesus is saying that his leaving is going to bring all sorts of remarkable blessings to us. God, in other words, is going to work good out of this. God's working good in your life right now. I know you may not see it. I, may you, I know you may not feel it. But God is going to have the final say on this matter. And what he says to us, even in our anxiety, is it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. It's ultimately going to be all right. It's going to be okay with you. It's going to be all right. This is the words of Jesus. The question is, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him? He's expecting us to trust him, but his expectation of trust is grounded not in you. It's grounded in him. It's grounded in who he is. The second benefit, Dave gave us the first one. The second benefit for Jesus going away is that it's going to lead to a deeper understanding of who he is. This trial that you're going through right now, God's going to use it. If you will allow him, if you will trust him, it will lead to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. Ask any of your friends who is a Christian who has passed through trial. They will share with you that the trial dropped them to their knees and they found Jesus to be better than they thought he was before. Often, 
a deeper understanding of who Jesus is comes when your heart's troubled. Some of you want a deeper understanding of Jesus, but you don't want what he's bringing to give it to you. Out of trials spring questions about the character of God, about the trustworthiness of God, about the timing of God, about the ability of God, about the sovereignty of God, about the goodness of God. These are the questions that spring from real hearts that are really going through something that's troubling. And that's okay. Maybe the church needs to say this more, that it's okay to have questions of God when you're passing through something that is extremely problematic, extremely sorrowful, causing extreme pain. It's okay to question, and I say that on good on a good standing because I see the saints throughout Scripture questioning God. There's another way of saying this. It's okay to not be okay. Because when you're not okay and you cry out to Jesus, you find what you need, the only thing that actually makes you okay. That's better. You're talking a little bit. The psalmist with a troubled heart questioned, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Moses, filled with anxiety as he tried to lead an extremely difficult people, said, how long, Lord? How long do I have to put up with these stiff-necked people? Elijah got a death threat, ran for his life, and then questioned the Lord and said, would you, Lord, please just let me die? Would you just let me die? Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like, I can't take any more of this, just let me die? That's an anxious heart. Even our dying Savior questioned the Father. My God, my God, question, why have you forsaken me? Thomas and Philip with troubled hearts throw their questions at Jesus. And I want to reiterate, it's okay to question God when you're troubled, when you're anxious, when you feel broken, when you're afraid, when you're fearful. God loves those kinds of questions because he meets us in the place where those questions arise. Broken people who feel not okay receive amazing grace from Jesus. Remember he said, it's not the well who I came. I I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the people that say, I don't feel okay, Lord. Things don't seem okay. Maybe everybody else is okay, but I don't feel okay. When you come to Brandywine Grace, I hope Brandywine Grace is always a place you notice the person sitting next to you is not okay, except that they're okay in Jesus. They walked into the room with a lot of problems too. 
and before Jesus rescued them and did a transforming work in them, you would have been disgusted by them. But Jesus is transforming broken people by his amazing grace. You can be brutally honest with God. And oftentimes when you are, you get a deeper understanding of who he is. So Thomas asks his question. Thomas asks his question. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Fair question. You keep telling us that you're going away and you're telling us that we're going to follow you soon or you, you say, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas had the guts to raise his hand and say, I actually don't know the way to where you're going. <laughs> Thomas the doubter, known throughout history as doubting Thomas. I wonder how history will remember you. I wonder if it will be kinder to you than it was to Thomas. Let me tell you this about Thomas. Thomas was a loyal and courageous and faithful disciple of Jesus who followed Jesus to his death. But if we're honest, we are a lot like Thomas who was liberally endowed with misapprehensions and doubts. He's the guy that asks the question that everybody else wants to ask but is too afraid to. He's the guy in class. You remember the person in class. You remember the nerd in class that always asked the question. It was like the test, the teacher was preparing you for the test, and, and, and you get this like in the back of the room or in the front of the room is where they typically sat. And uh, I'm looking at some of you because and, and, I was in the back of the room. And, and, and they raised the, excuse me. Excuse me, Mr. Barker. Excuse me, Mr. Barker. Can you, just ex can you just tell us, is this test going to be based mainly on the, the book or is it going to be based mainly on what you've been teaching us? And we all went, oh my goodness. Uh, this, is this guy for real? And then Mr. Barker said, that's actually a good question. So let me just tell you exactly what's going to be on the test. And then we feverishly... <laughs> started taking notes. <laughs> Thomas, the doubter, asks his question and gets a response from Jesus that rings throughout all history as one of the most comforting, assuring responses ever spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Aren't you glad that Thomas asked his question? Because you got, I am, from the, word, from the mouth of Jesus, you got, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hold on, hold on, Jesus. What you said, and you know the way. Thomas said, how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. You don't know what this is saying that he is the way. That he's the one that makes a way 
for, for you to be in, in an eternal relationship with God. Now, this is his sixth I am statement. I think we have that chart. You guys can put that up now. This is the sixth I am statement of John. So he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he's always already said, you can't remember these, so I just wanted to put them up. He's already told us that I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the sixth one. We got one more to do. I am the true vine. We'll hit that soon. These are important statements. The structure of this statement is interesting. Jesus is not giving a string of descriptive terms. So you read it wrong if you read it, I am the way and the truth and the life. You read it wrong. It's not what he means. It's an elliptical form of this phrase. He's, a better translation would be, I am the way because I am the truth. Because I am the life. What's being highlighted here is the way. And what stands slightly underneath the way is the fact that he is a true manifestation of God. He has revealed God to us. He is truth. And he is the source alone. The power of eternal life. Now, this is not the first time we've seen these things in the scriptures. Jesus said he was the door. You have to enter through him to be saved. Jesus said, or the scripture tells us that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The scripture tells us that there's only one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. I love when you repeat scripture. John told us from the beginning that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. So, so this is not some exceptional statement we find only on the lips of Jesus here in his farewell discourse. This is the consistent theme that runs in through the entirety of the New Testament. That God has provided a path. God has provided a road. God has provided a way of redemption which was his plan for all eternity, and Jesus took on himself a human nature, lived, died, rose again, and ascended to make a way. I'm going to go a little bit longer. I'll call the band up in a minute. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God. I am, he said, the way, the truth, and the life. What an exclusive claim. What exclusivity. You say that on the first day of class, freshman year of college, and you will receive the glare and scorn of many. 
We don't like exclusive claims. The world says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Doesn't matter what you believe. The phrase, it doesn't matter what you believe, is antithetical to Christianity. It doesn't matter what you believe is out of line with Jesus. I remember hearing an interview with Tiger Woods once, a famous golfer. And someone asked him a question about faith, and he, he responded brilliantly. He said, my mother is Buddhist. And my father is a Christian, and I practice both faiths respectfully. Now, in some ways, I want to I say to you, that's a brilliant answer in this day and age. You, you put that out there, put that on your Instagram now, and watch how many people heart that thing. That, that is a, a statement that flies extremely favorably in the culture that we live. It sounds so good. It sounds so postmodern. It sounds so ecumenical. It sounds so loving. But if you really stop and think about it, it's completely impossible. Practicing Buddhism and Christianity at the same time respectfully would be like being simultaneously an Eagles fan and a Cowboys fan respectfully. It would, it's even worse than that. It's worse than that. It's actually, the statement is more equivalent to saying, I play for the Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys respectfully. Here in the U.S., all religions are equally tolerated under the law. Religious freedom. We should work to guard religious freedom. You know that, right? Because we benefit from it. But we make a gratuitous leap from equality under the law to equal validity before God. And that's a perilous place to stand because the scriptures say there's only one way to God and it's through Jesus. You can't practice both faiths respectfully. Now, let me just, a uh, quick thought here. Some, we, we don't have to be snarky and unloving and antagonistic in our responses to people who actually believe that. We should actually be loving. I mean, didn't Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you? If we believe that, if, if what we really believe is that Jesus is the only way to God to be my way, 
or your way, like just one opinion among many, and the unspoken premise of our logic was that anything that I believe or anything that you believe is the only true way to think, then that would be unspeakably arrogant, bigoted, narrow-minded. But Christians believe Jesus is the only way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It doesn't matter what Kenny says. What Jesus says is what matters. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If I deny that, then I deny Christ. But let's take this statement and apply it to a troubled heart because that's what we're talking about here. What does it mean for us? The answer, you guys should be able to repeat it with me now. The answer for an anxious and troubled heart is confident, trust, in Jesus. Man, I did it. <laughs> Jesus presents himself unambiguously as the object of trust for a troubled heart. Our faith needs an adequate grounding. Jesus provides it in a deeper understanding of who he is. I and the Father are one. He's helping us to have a deeper understanding that our faith might be useful to us, actually useful to us, when our hearts are troubled. Don't you want a useful faith? Don't you want a faith that functions when your heart is troubled? Our faith needs to be grounded on something solid if it's going to overcome the anxiety of a troubled heart. The effectiveness and strength of our faith are bound up in the greatness, capacity, and dependability of God upon whom our faith is resting. Infinite greatness, infinite capacity, infinite dependability. Uh, the effectiveness of our faith is bound up in those things. Are you dealing with anxiety? Do you have a troubled heart? The answer is confident trust in Jesus. The troubled heart needs to remember that Jesus is the way, the truth to remember that Jesus is everything. Jesus these words that he spoke came right before he went to the cross. Stick with me. Just a couple more minutes. These words come right before the cross, and we find comfort there. We find comfort at the cross, not only in its saving power, but also in its demonstration of pure, 100%, undefiled, undiluted, divine love of God. And Jesus' love is going to see us through this troubled world. Do you believe that? If you've written anything down today, I hope it's this, that the answer for an anxious and troubled heart is confident trust in Jesus. I can't make your troubles go away. I wish that I could. I can only point you to the one that's going to see you through your troubles. I've been thinking about death. Let me ask the band to return. I've been thinking about death recently. Maybe it's because I read my Bible a lot. And the Bible and Jesus talk a lot about preparing us for ultimately death and eternity through salvation in his name. That's maybe not the only reason I've been thinking about death. Maybe it's because a friend's 24-year-old daughter, same age as one of my children, 
just died of a drug overdose. Maybe it's because I spoke at a funeral last Monday. Maybe it's because my dad has cancer. Maybe it's because people that I love are growing older. When I think about death, I don't think, I'll say I don't think, because I've processed it. I actually don't think I'm afraid of death. Death doesn't hold any fear for those of us that are in Christ because we know that we're His. We know whom we've believed in. We know we have this promise of eternal life with Him. So I don't think that I fear death, but I am afraid of dying. None of us knows the root that the passing of this life into the next is going to take. But for many of us, it is going to take a path of great pain, great suffering, great anxiety. So I'm saying I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of dying. Maybe you can relate to that. Which is to say I'm afraid of suffering. Right? I'm afraid of troubles and trials. When the kids were real little, Amy, my wife, taught them a bunch of old hymns. When they were little, taught them a bunch of the old hymns, like a lot of them. She taught them like 25, 30, 40 hymns. Like she just would teach them, and kids' minds are like sponges. Like they remember everything, like the first time through, and they remember it. So when I would put them to bed, I would ask them, what hymns did mom teach today? And I can remember this one moment in particular and specifically. I was sitting next to my, uh, he was probably about three or four, Tristan, who you guys, he's, he's at school now, um, but he's big, 220-pound kid now, man now. But I was sitting next to his bed, a little toddler bed, and I asked him about the hymns that he was learning, and he said he learned a new one today. He said, do you want me to sing it to you? I said, yeah, buddy, sing it to me. He said, we learned Rock of Ages. And for some reason, the only part I remember of him singing was the last verse. Guys, it is forever frozen in my mind, tattooed to my heart. He sang it to me thinking that I had never heard it before. And it hit me like I'd never heard it before. In his three-year-old voice, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death. And I soar to worlds unknown and see thee 
on that judgment throne. Rock of ages. Cleft from me. Let me hide myself in thee. Friends, hide yourself in Jesus. It's going to be 